welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Julian Everett, and he is CTO of Data Language. Julian's here to discuss the digital transformation that data language has delivered for Cochrane, the global not-for-profit whose mission is to put evidence at the heart of health decision-making and how other healthcare organizations could benefit from emerging technologies and in particular AI. So Julian, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks very much, James. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Julia? I gather you're, you're on holiday. Uh, I am, yep. <laughs> Just uh, taking a few days with the uh, kids over half term I'm, I'm down in Dorset just outside Lyme Regis ah lovely a staycation yeah. a staycation indeed yep. whereabouts are you based Julian um normally um near Dorking in Surrey oh lovely not too far from me I'm in Weybridge all right fantastic yeah, not too yeah. far at all yeah. cool so Julian the way that we start these episodes is I get you to tell a bit of your story so yeah uh c-suite of data language working in health tech must be an interesting journey that got you here so uh, by all means so uh, give us the long version tell us your right. story <laughs> so in terms of my academic background so basically I uh, trained in life sciences so um I studied at Cambridge um in biological sciences and then philosophy of science um and actually got into IT um, in the effectively in the uh, in the late nineties in the during the dot com bubble, um, really through helping some friends who. So I learned to program when I must be eleven or twelve, um, back uh, learning basic on the old baby BBC. But you're glad you did that back in the day. I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> it came good. Who, who knew thought? coding was yeah. going to be the new like rock star? Like honestly, yeah. yeah um and so actually yeah it was a, a friend who had a, a database company who had more work that he could handle <laughs> I started off just kind of helping out um doing some coding um on these database systems for for him and really enjoyed I, I guess the um so it was IT at that time was a bit like the wild west um yeah and but there was um a great deal of freedom and also I like the meritocracy of it that provided you could jump in and adapt and learn the new technologies actually just ability was what was counted because there was such a skill shortage at that time interesting um, so um yeah I worked um to stop for a small consultancy for a little while um, as a freelancer and then for a very large American e-com consultancy um up until 2000 when um everything that i guess the hype hype caught up with itself um and things got rocky for a little (laughs) while um but i think even with that that was kind of an interesting time that there was i guess a shakedown of uh some of the uh technology delivery practices which weren't so robust yeah Um, uh basically ended up I, i guess there was a natural selection that took place to some extent and i i think it's interesting with hindsight to see actually the correlation with the um, the crossover of agile um, delivery technologies. Kind of, I I don't know, I don't know to, to what extent that's really a meaningful yeah, yeah. correlation. But the obviously the kind of two thousands was where that really took hold as actually how can we deliver technology in a, a more resilient way in a way that adapts at the same rate of change as businesses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I worked for ironically actually what happened so uh, the um having worked in in that such a volatile environment um of 
in the dot-com bubble, um, I thought, okay, I need to try and find an organization which is kind of the, um, the most uh, resilient and has kind of the safest market position. And I, ironically, I worked for, a, I, I chose a television text service um, for a couple of years, um, which was in the very early stages of kind of satellite broadcasting. So we were working on set-top boxes with tiny, tiny amounts of memory and, wow. and, and <laughs> no standards at all. But um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, things didn't work out there quite. So I, I guess because they were in a monopoly position in the market on yeah. analog TV, they just didn't have the kind of culture or internal capabilities um, to progress really. And yeah, so not many of those companies have survived um, unfortunately, so I did. So since then, basically, I've worked primarily in media organisations and have done work also um, in financial services. Um, but always, it's essentially been on data services um, and, in particular, kind of um, knowledge representation and how to represent information and uh, distribute it. Um, across enterprises or across markets. Um, I ended up working in, um, so from 2007 to 2012, I worked at the BBC um, and ended up as the chief architect of bbc.com, which wow. uh, at that time was the, um, so that was part of BBC Worldwide, which was essentially the international arm yeah. of the BBC, essentially looking to kind of, um, make up for shortfall in the license fee through kind of uh, outside UK commercial activities. Um, and in particular, the move that historically they were a B2B organization um, and they were, they'd realized that actually there was um, more value to be delivered back into the public service potentially by acting in a B2C manner. So um, I was part of that division. Um, and at the, one of the um, largest programs we did was, um, an internationalization of BBC news and sport, so particularly targeting the US um, and then additions uh, for India and Australia. Um, and as part of that, um, we, there was a joint project um, using linked data technology, um, which is effectively what we now call knowledge graph systems, um, to encode the representations that journalists had in the news and sport domain. Um, and it was really the largest, or it, it, probably it was the first kind of internet scale application of those technologies. Um, wow. So I was still working as a freelancer at that time. Um, there were a number of other freelancers who worked on, on that particular project. And the BBC started getting approached by other organisations who were really interested in what would go on to become knowledge graphs. And we thought, hang on, there's a, an opportunity here for us. So um, a number of us had thought, if the right opportunity to come along uh, to, to set up a, a consultancy appears, um, that's we, sh we should jump at it. And um, so, yeah, effectively, the, I think it was the it was at the time of the BB of the the last work I did there was essentially in the run up to the London 2012 Olympics, um, helping with the scaling of their infrastructure, um, and then we started doing uh, essentially knowledge graph systems um, for customers in academic research um, and publishing primarily to start with. Um, and not long after that, um, 
we started working with Cochrane. So Cochrane are our longest current um, customer. So we've been working with them since 2014. Um, and what we found was, so we started off, um, as I say, focusing on knowledge graph systems, in particular, um, trying to build systems that um, had uh, machine readable or machine, yeah, machine processable representations of how the the, the uh, subject matter experts in organizations, so the people who really make it happen, how do mm -hmm. they see the world, um, how this kind of in-depth knowledge that they have, how can we represent that in a way that makes it um, as easy as possible to uh, essentially meet the needs of, of customers yeah. uh, through different types of product um, and also to then recombine it in different ways. Um, what we found is having done that for, so probably after focusing solely on knowledge graphs for about two to three years, we started getting approached by organizations as well who were, had done big data implementations mm -hmm. where I think possibly um, they'd, um, so they put in large scale data warehouses, subsequently data lakes, um, and had thought, right, if we can just get all our data in one place, then we'll get this kind of filtering will happen. And <laughs> all this amazing stuff will happen. Yeah. <laughs> insight will float to the top and that hadn't necessarily happened. And then they thought, well, okay, what can we do if we can try and make more explicit representations of how um, the experts in our organization um, see the world? How can that actually be a complement? How can these two technologies complement each other and potentially us use the data we have in uh, big data repositories really as a way of refining and evolving um, these models of the world? Um, and then obviously the machine learning revolution happened in terms of kind of all these new libraries that have... Um, Sounds quite timely. Indeed it was, yeah. <laughs> um, and the so um in 2016 2017 we uh we set up a data science discipline um and so that's essentially the kind of two core functions on the consulting side in data language mm. now is basically uh full stack delivery so data architecture technical architecture and um from so we have a, a team of sort of front, people doing beautiful front ends um through so kind of back-end infrastructure and a data science team. Um, what we found as well during that time on, uh, in terms of consulting work is that we were seeing repeating patterns of kind of pain points um, yeah. with certain customers where there wasn't a, a product in the market which was addressing that pain point. Yeah. Um, and that has been a, a, a really interesting evolution. So always in the back of our mind, we were aware when we started working in, with knowledge graph technologies. Um, so I, I think one of the uh, key themes probably over my career has always been um, an interest, I, I guess, possibly in terms of my biological sciences background as well, just kind of thinking about uh, evolutionary <laughs> pressures and how, how they apply to ideas and to technology. Um, and we were always aware that actually, although organizations in the early uh, 2010s who were working on knowledge graphs were essentially kind of in the uh, innovation genesis stage these things always get commoditized and actually um, that work which was started off being consulting work um, sooner or later more and more of uh, 
that bes- those bespoke builds were going to become SaaS services. And actually, we could be part of that journey, particularly as we were getting this really good insight into actually what the key challenges were that our customers were struggling with. So now we basically have a, a product division and a consulting division, and we have a, a knowledge graph platform, um, some AI services, um, which focus on yeah, specific uh, uh, problems that are, we've, we've seen um, our customers looking at, and then a consulting arm as well. So, awesome. Yeah. It's a super interesting background, isn't it? And you can see how all of this comes together because you've got biological science, philosophy of science, which I think is really yeah. interesting. That must really change the way you see the world because then to go into IT, then to see the yeah. dot-com bubble, then to see all this innovation, see a boom and bust. Uh, how, how did that philosophy bit influence you, do you think? So that's been, um, re- so <laughs> it has been strange, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I would say that, so from the philosophy of side that, so the training in linguistics has been really key in terms of the knowledge representation and semantics. Okay. And that was not something I ever foresaw. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Of, uh, applied direct relevance to my working life. And yeah. suddenly I was like, hang on, right. And also formal logic and uh, predicate uh, logic. Yeah, yeah so okay. I would say, yeah, the that has definitely been a, a really strong factor and pos- i think one of without realizing it maybe something that's always been a driver towards me focusing on sort of how how can we represent information and yeah this interest in sort of trying to represent uh subject matter experts kind of world views um well you know what it's it's an argument for the fact that if you if you try too hard to piece together these parts of your career, you know, getting the exact right academic course at the exact right university to then get the exact grad scheme that you want to do the exact thing later. And you, you do this stuff extracurricular because you think it's going to lead to this, you know, this is more of an argument for just do what you do, what you enjoy and, and piecing together these weird things it's like me now in my in my career like i've always enjoyed a bit of photography a bit a bit of videography a bit of design stuff a bit of yeah. social media stuff i did medicine which is very different now i combine all of that stuff <laughs> you know? yep, now, like good job i kept doing a bit of design stuff and a bit of photography and a bit of videography because now i've got clients that we do videography for just in the health tech sector exactly. you know so yep. it, it's completely yep. relevant so I think that's just a really nice message there of like, I imagine I was also a bit, I was also interested in philosophy, but I never did it. But um, I used to, you know, watch a few Alan Watts videos and things on YouTube and and that kind of stuff. I always found it really interesting. Um, But it is, you know, it's an argument for that, isn't it? Follow your nose and and, and you might as well spend the time doing what you enjoy, because if you enjoy it enough, you'll spend enough time on it to master it. And then you might be able to monetize it, particularly if you combine the weird stuff with the conventional. Like that's where that's where the gaps are, I think. Absolutely. I I think that's a a really uh, a really great point. And it it also resonates with me. So, So I have. I think uh, so. I've had an interest in kind of complex systems as well, and yeah, okay. that notion of how how which, which also applies so much to organisations of kind of how can you be resilient and adaptable. And I think it's about having kind of uh, a suite of discrete capabilities um, and then being open to serendipitous recombination as kind of your context evolves over time. So um, 
Yeah. <laughs> I can see how your mind works between the philosophy right. and the, and the right. words and the biology and yeah. the knowledge and the, the IT systems. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah. And for that reason, I suppose it must be, it must be nice to combine all of that in what is essentially your own business, right? And you, and you, you can set things up exactly how you want. I have a question though, before we move on, I know you have touched on this, but just so we're all clear, can you define a knowledge graft system? I think kind of different of the different knowledge graph providers have slightly different definitions, some which uh, will be more focused on kind of technical implementation. So for me, a knowledge graph system is a system which has a, um, so it has a conceptual representation of the core domain of the organization at its heart in terms of how the data is represented. And actually for, so that will be in terms of a set of classes, which essentially are kind of the types of, um, so, so maybe in the, in the example, I could give you an example for, from Cochrane. Um, yeah. Might be, a, um, bring it to life more. What we try to do when in using knowledge graphs within, within an organization is, um, so the, the foundation of everything we do is essentially try and understand kind of what are the problems the customers of this organization are, are, yep. are, are dealing with and how um, how can we put in place systems that best help those uh, problems to be solved. Yep. And that kind of outside in set of constraints means that we always find that a useful way of, I, I think one of the challenges um, with knowledge graph systems um, in terms of their historical legacy so back in the early 2000s so some of those technologies particularly around owl and some of the ontology modeling work um, has come out of um, academic research where um, there's some fantastic models have been created but sometimes um, they have additional um, functionality and behaviors which impacts the scalability of them yep um, so what we do is basically try and work out, okay, to, to solve this set of problems, what is the core representation of the information? So for any organization uh, that's basically a knowledge organization, yeah. um, what is the fundamental kind of representation of this knowledge artifact, uh, of this information ar artifact? And so for Cochrane, actually, we were really lucky because so in many organizations, what we do is we'll go in and um, we have a, the head of our information um, uh, our information architecture discipline, a, a, a fantastic guy who's um, got an amazing ability to sit in in front of a whiteboard with groups of two or three people from all different parts of organization. And he will just kind of in 30 minutes um, discuss with them just how they see the world and just mm. very briefly do it. And th through this process of iterating over and over again, starts building up all these different lenses of how these people who perform these kind of critical functions in the business actually see the world wow. and then start stitching that together and what what's also interesting with that is you find that different communities actually um I, I guess back to the philosophy of language piece to some extent that actually there's a sort of uh a, a, a socially relative sometimes yep. aspect to how people so what product means to someone in sales will be something completely different to what product means um, for someone yeah. in rights, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I think the lots of the kind of true enterprise data models 
rollout systems suffer because they try and impose this single view of what these uh, concepts mean and you end up with kind of a reduction yeah if you down to something that's um, uh, so small to have a common surface area across everything rather than actually having these more kind of localized views or so uh, we use a methodology called domain driven design um, which tries to define what are these kind of communities who perform a, a shared set of functions that have this kind of similar worldview and actually how can we um, create a, uh, a representation that, that fully represents um, how, how they see the world. So um, in the case of Cochrane, um, they already had this. So for them, um, in, uh, so I, I assume your, uh, your listeners are familiar with Cochrane in, in terms of yeah, the systematic reviews. They Some produce. will be. Yeah. Okay. So that uh, very brief summary. Um, so they're essentially kind of internationally recognised as kind of the the benchmark, I think, for high quality evidence effectiveness in healthcare. Yeah. Um, and their fundamental mission is to promote evidence informed healthcare decision making. I think over ninety percent of the WHO guidelines, for example, are informed by systematic reviews from Cochrane. Um, so for them, um, they have this thing called the Cochrane Handbook, which basically sets out in um, detail that's authored by a number of different groups who focus on methodology within Cochrane. Um, and I think one of the really interesting things about um, uh, being able to ha have worked with Cochrane over this time is that they, although they're focusing on healthcare, actually what they do has been um, such a, uh, a useful and profound learning exercise for us in terms yeah. of actually understanding what does evidence-based decision making at kind of the top level really look like um the, so for them the the key is essentially how how can you encode clinic uh, statistically meaningful clinical healthcare questions mm. and what they have is this model which is really a about defining clinical evidence in terms of what they call PICO, where the PICO stand for population, which will consist of um, uh, the different demographic characteristics and conditions and potentially treatments that a, a population has, um, what interventions um, are being tried. So particularly in the context of randomized controlled trials, if you're trying to encode a, a descriptor of a piece of clinical evidence, so what population um, uh, was uh, involved in the trial, what interventions against what comparators and what out outcomes were the measures. So um, what we did was basically build up a knowledge graph. So a conceptual model of this PICO uh, question framework in terms of the different classes that can define a population. Uh, the different ways of uh, looking at intervention in terms of actually what drugs or procedures, then what the method of the delivery, the settings are. Um, then we went out uh, and looked at what, effectively what public domain vocabularies are there that allow us to kind of seed like the best fit for each of these different kind of dimensions of this PICO model. Um, and it started off uh, with it being a, a manual process then um which uh, where the information specialists within cochrane would look to um effectively build what were really these kind of mini knowledge graphs themselves which describe um the clinical evidence so if you think of a, a 
a report about a, a multi-arm trial, for example, there will be uh, each arm of the trial might might be looking at different combinations of drugs views against each other. So you have a kind of almost like set operations which describe this like mini graph of the different types of uh, the different arms of the trial, or who the participants were. Um, so these were built up. And then once we had that manual process in place, what we've been looking at then is how can we scale this in terms of them bringing machine learning into it as well. Um, so practically speaking then, yeah. How is that system then used? Who uses it right. and what does it practically do? Okay. So um, in terms of who uses it right now, um, the, it's used. So the, the system consists of a suite of different services. Okay. So um, yep. the, when we started working with Cochrane, basically the problems that, that they approached us to um, help help them solve were around firstly how can um, how can they improve evidence discoverability so primary evidence in terms of study reports so the yep. inputs into their Big systematic um, uh, review process so obviously as a starting point if you're looking at a particular clinical question what mm. you want to do in, in terms of essentially how that funnel works is how how can I be sure I've actually, I'm looking at all the currently available evidence about yep. this particular question. Correct. Um, yeah. So the discoverability, then accessibility, making sure if you are aware something's there, can you actually get the data out of it? Um, and reusability, also interoperability as well. Mm -hmm. So um, if you've got um, a, um, a systematic review or a study report that's talking about anxiety, so obviously anxiety in the context of maybe dementia is a very different thing to anxiety in the context of benzodiazepam withdrawal or something like that. Yep. And actually, if you're just using text as the way of um, annotating and understanding um, the uh, content, the, you can get into significant problems around kind of the wrong content being aggregated. So there's been a, a, a few um, quite high profile examples of where that's gone wrong. So um, how can we, how can we make that some of the ambiguities in natural language um, uh, be pushed down and so mm -hmm. that we can ensure the interoperability of the data. Um, and the, so what we realized is that if we can, if we can annotate the primary evidence on uh, ingest into the, uh, into Cochrane, so then what it allows is a managing editor or someone who's looking at a new review question to effectively say, right, um, if they were looking at, um, uh, they wanted to do a, a new review on um, asthma in pregnant women, for mm -hmm. example, okay, that by having these vocabularies, which you can essentially get them to formulate the question as something that can be compiled immediately into a query uh, and then run over these structured graphs which describe all this data and immediate so something that previously would have taken months for an information specialist to kind of define wow, okay. a search protocol then run it against m-based um pubmed actually that's something that you can get a data baseline almost real time near real time now so wow cochran's trying to put in place 
um, this thing called the living systematic review, where at yes. any moment in time, you can basically say, um, and really what this is doing is, is enabling them to scale um, the, the, so effectively to reduce the cycle time in the production of review. So once you've got that first set of potentially relevant evidence, the next step is um, you need to assess it for the reliability of the data. So um, if you're, I, I guess, outside of the context of the COVID pandemic, um, the, um, they had um, arguably the luxury, I guess, of being able to just focus on RCTs as that yeah. uh, gives you the highest quality evidence. Yeah. Um, so for them looking at actually, so were these trials double-blinded? What the what was the randomization protocol? Kind of what is the mm. risk of bias that might be associated if if there any of the trials which were conducted in a way which don't meet their quality thresholds actually they get excluded, and then essentially the the set of the subset of um, studies which do meet their quality criteria effectively depending on the number of participants you get a weighting of the efficacy yeah. and then that gets aggregated yeah. together so it's um so his to start with it was basically um the internal production process um what we quickly realized though was in um having structured data on the inputs effectively that lives with the evidence all the way down the pipeline and enables you to put it on the output as well so you might have noticed on cochrane library there's now a Pico search, which allows this knowledge graph driven search of all the systematic reviews um, within the library. Um, wow. And um, what it also enabled us to do. So in conjunction with the, um, with putting in place the knowledge graph as the data store, um, back to the subject of how do you build a technology estate that's as adaptable as possible. Um, and to what we're saying about having these discrete competencies, actually that that's how that's the core focus um, in terms of, I guess, one of the underlying design principles when we're putting in place a, the suite of services and APIs that then expose the data that's in the knowledge graph. Um, what we found is that within an organization, generally, uh, unless there's a kind of fundamental strategic shift and you are going to another sector completely, there's certain things that actually, um, which, which often actually are really about what the information is, mm. right? Um, which so more change much yeah. of, over time, yeah? What changes is where it comes from, mm. um, how it's processed, where, it, where it's output, how it's output. But if you can build services that focus on just what the information is and make that available, um, it, and then make it as easy as possible for the organization to recombine those in novel ways and in ways that they haven't even thought about right now. Yeah. That's how you build adaptability. And um, really, I think that the ultimate proof of that was in terms of then um, with the, uh, uh, sorry, in March of last year um, with the pandemic, um, basically they realized that suddenly um, what they needed to do was look at potentially not just RCT data, uh, outputs, but uh, observational studies, uh, predictive studies, um, all potentially available evidence. How can that be pulled together into this portal to actually allow people visibility of what is the current state of evidence we have about certain types of interventions or procedures um, related to uh, treatment of COVID? So um, we having that existing infrastructure and um, 
suite of services in place enabled us to basically so there was a, a change management piece within Cochrane around these changing practices mm. also we had to put together um, a new integration of services on the back end and build a new front end for their uh, study register and we basically did the whole thing in a bit over three weeks which was a nice justification of kind of that adaptability wow yeah it's awesome i mean it makes total sense to me it seems like you know the problem that you're solving is one that even at the i suppose the the more micro level as a practicing clinician you often end up you know flicking through the bmj or reading papers or this that and the other and and you as an individual always have a view on that data that's presented to you. You do have yeah. a view because you, yeah. you might read the method and be like, well, I'm not, I'm not because of that, this means something slightly different or because of this, this means something slightly different. And to then try and combine those studies, even in your mind of a few things that you've read to try and figure out, shall I do this or shall I do this other thing? You, you are pulling different information. That data means something different to you and you could apply that in a different way each time. So it sounds like, you know, what you guys obviously do is code that. You can code the opinions of the experts and you can code for different, well, you can build something basically. You can build something that can identify those different nuances, but then then the value kicks in, which is the ability to then not have to do weeks, months of work to decide what you can aggregate. What you're suggesting is all of that evidence can be aggregated through a knowledge graph system, essentially. Indeed. And that's what you talked about when you said, where you describe the living systematic review, being able to then put any research question down and essentially just have all of the evidence contextualized, contextualized straight to you to build whatever systematic review you want. I think when we think about, when we think about health tech, we often think about apps or devices or things essentially. This is something that's incredibly powerful that sits at the back end. It's incredibly, it'll be the unsung hero of so many new discoveries or trials or different things that come out as a result, right? Or as as you've pointed out, you know, even the the, the COVID pandemic recovery, it's an unsung hero in that already, right? And I think that's what's really interesting here. And I think on this podcast, we often, we often talk to, you know, the, the, the techie startup founders and, and they're building this thing that you can see and feel and look at and all the rest of it. But it's obviously in talking to people like yourself that makes me realize and remember that there are these, frankly, less sexy things going on in the background that are making a heck of a lot of difference. Because if you start extrapolating all of the benefits that will come out of that living systematic review all of those other systematic reviews that are going to happen as a result of that. You know, if, if you think about the, the, the benefits downstream yeah. of that, it really starts to compound and it starts to get exponential. I couldn't agree more, James. And so, uh, so I think that focus on like, ultimately what's the bottom line here. It's about how can we most effectively improve treatments to patients? Yeah. Um, right. That if you, so I think there's kind of two really interesting additional components of that mm. uh, that 
then uh, kind of follow-ons on this story. So firstly, so what PICO gives you is essentially the evidence of um, efficacy of different drugs uh, f- across different subgroups yep. in a population, okay? Um, now, there, as part of the definition of the intervention, there'll be information around kind of what the mode of delivery is, what's the, the, con- uh, the, the setting. And actually, if you're a healthcare provider, um, sorry, it may not be the case right now, but it's kind of... In terms of the readiness of, of financial data available uh, within a health provider, but um, it's kind of readily conceivable, I guess, as a sort of idealized way of how things work right now, that potentially you could say you, the the data that is costing a healthcare provider to um, f- for the delivery of different types of intervention, you could. Um, basically add that into this model and say well okay for a a given set of kind of budgetary constraints if you know the the demographic of um the population that you're serving and what the distribution of conditions are and you've got this set of funding constraints actually how can you have the 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 most benefit yeah Um, you can build a health economic model indeed and the so i would always um basically add a proviso on that in as much as I think what you were saying around. So I think the risk, so these systems have got the potential to be so powerful, but I, I guess the there's that, uh, is it Spider-Man or something with great power comes great responsibility. Indeed. I think the, the risk for mi- misuse and misapplication, I think particularly with machine learning, because it's kind of hard to understand what's really going on. Yes. I think, for these things to be not a target, if, I think if, if people build a system like that and it then becomes a target, everything's mm. going to go horribly wrong. But if it can be another piece of intelligence that then can be fed back to the clinician, because you at point of care, again, I kind of see it, in, I guess, from an evolutionary point of view of the set of inputs you have of um, the data of using a, a, a patient in a context, you're going to have much more inputs than any machine learning system is going to be able to give you right so the outputs so for us we're really strong advocates that it's about decision support not decision making yeah it's about um and so i think the other interesting part of this though is then um so if you had that model i think there's still then a um a a constraint around when you have that patient in a point of care how closely do they are they to the average within the subgroup? Um, because basically, if if they don't look, so the closer they are to the average of, of the subgroup, the more relevant that recommendation yep. is going to be. But I, I think what's really interesting as the kind of next stage from that is kind of what personalized healthcare <laughs> could represent, where you have essentially the electronic health records coming in and actually the kind of collapse between. Uh, historically with Cochrane it was kind of research and then point of care applied practice and you could kind of see these things converging going forwards where actually there's a sort of virtuous cycle that um, that data from the electronic health record could then feed back into research and actually the outputs from research if it's based on the electronic health record you can kind of do a custom subgrouping which actually is totally targeted to this person you're looking at right now yeah. So yeah, those are I guess the things that most and there's the, and these are the thought these are the these are the late night thoughts I have too. Like what if right. uh, and I you know I yeah. I remember when I, even when I was a clinician I used to think that 
Um, when I was an anaesthetist, I think I've told the story a couple of times this podcast, but when I was an anaesthetist, I, I remember towards the end, almost before I left, I used to sit there just thinking, this anaesthetic machine is connected to the patient. It's already measuring heart rate. It's already measuring blood pressure and respiratory rate and arterial pressure. It's everything's already going through this. What if we all gave our drugs through this as well? So it also knew what drugs the patient was getting, and then it could see the effect itself. So it knows the effect of metaraminol or ephedrine. It knows the effect on heart rate and blood pressure. Yeah. What if then it's got a camera that it can view the surgical field? What if then it's got, you know, the temperature of the patient? What if, what if the anesthetic, what if everything was captured through the anesthetic machine and they're all connected via a wide area network? And then we capture all of that data in one second globally, you'd have amassed more knowledge than the most experienced experienced consultant of anesthesia, like a hundred times over, kind of, but not yeah. really, but kind of, but not really. <laughs> so like, do you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. and, and back to your point that all of that information would be great if then fed back to a very experienced human that was actually yeah. collecting far more data than we really know we're collecting, um, yep. that possibly yeah. go beyond our five senses, who knows? Yeah. Um, so th those are similar late night thoughts yeah. that I have and similar thoughts that I had when, even when I was a clinician. And, and it's funny when you start going down that path of what if we collected all the data? It's funny, like, where does where does that end? But I, to I totally agree with you, you know, electronic records, everything going through the anesthetic machine, connecting all of that stuff to research, the ability to then ask whatever research question you want it's a very interesting future. It really is. Um, and I've spoken to quantum physicists on this podcast before talking about their ability to run infinite possibilities of reality to come up with answer. They can cut, they can produce the simplest equation possible out of multiple sets of data using quantum physics somehow. Um, there's an episode on it somewhere, but you know, you throw that stuff in and yeah. all of a sudden, like we're yeah. in this sort of like health tech utopia of like, yeah. oh, everything's well, possible. So that's an interesting one. So I, I actually, I would say to some extent, I'm despite uh, my enthusiasm about some of this <laughs> stuff, I, I'm also a skeptic. Okay. So I Good think back to the, again, thinking in terms of, I guess, evolutionary context, right. Yeah. Of um, Actually the, I think data driven, um, decision-making and forecasting is applicable in certain contexts and it tends to be the ones which aren't novel. So if you think of kind of that scale over time from kind of novel to emergent, I guess through a complex system as it then goes, becomes complicated to then simple. For me, I think of really, so what happened with COVID was a really good example there, right? Okay, that you, you have in the emergence of a, new disease you kind of have blindness about the environment right so you don't know un unless you have a descriptor of the environment you don't know which of your current historic data is applicable ah okay. interesting yeah and also you don't have in the early stages you don't have any data right you've got yeah. what have you got you've got data from MERS and SARS is that relevant so yeah it, in those domains even if you've got all the data in the world it's it's much more uh, so the other I uh, so for me, I think risk management, which is a weird thing that came out of having a mild degree of exposure to financial services. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's been the other kind of weird thing that I never thought would come in here. Yeah. Uh, and to what you were saying about um, if you have all these systems connected up. So um, there's a technique um, that some technology teams call 
use called pre-mortems, which is basically <laughs> kind of like a, an upfront post-mortem, right? Yeah, so you kind of, but there's a, a similar technique that someone recently told me about that apparently Lockheed developed for the US Army in the, the 40s called um, failure mode and effect analysis, right? Which I think is such a critical thing to be doing if you're implementing any kind of machine learning where effectively what you do is, so if, if you're putting in place um, some kind of knowledge graph system and a set of services, okay, what you're really doing is you're, you're mirroring these different business processes, these core functions of the organization. And essentially what you do is you, you analyze each one of these components and say, right, how, what are all the different ways this thing could go wrong, right? Mm. Which is basically what your failure modes are. And then, um, so it might be, what if, uh, what if my algorithm uses data to make a prediction that actually isn't relevant to this context, right? Okay. And then the effects are of each one of these failure modes, what is the consequence of that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, um, and then what are the mitigations? And I, I think if you have... Um, that type of analysis as a complement to a knowledge graph um, and machine learning systems, it gives you all the benefit, but you're not doing something that's actually creating really high risk if, um, because sometimes these systems, I guess, unlike a human, they can fail catastrophically and unpredictably. Whereas if a human gets it wrong, like you still get the benefit of generally their kind of contextual awareness. Or, whereas if a statistical model gets it wrong, it might get it really badly wrong. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Blue screen and all that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think to be honest, that's an, it's an appropriate note to, to start to wrap up on because I think, yeah. yes, with all of the, um, optimism there has to be a heavy heavy dose of realism and i think you know the an element of a pre-mortem i think is a very 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 good idea i think that could probably be used across lots of elements of uh, technology and business more broadly but um i can certainly see a few uh, a few examples where that might have been helpful to me in the past but yeah i, I think it always has to be caveated with a dose of realism because as, as much as, as much as these technologies can do, you're absolutely right. At least with a human catastrophically wrong, unless someone's intending to do harm is, is very unlikely. Um, yeah. Which is why all of these systems uh, technologies, I think I agree with you that they should always be part of the team. They can be very smart members of the team, but they should just be that it should be, clinical decision support and they should be members of the team but certainly knowledge graph systems sound like a very important member of the team going forwards if if in the background doing research or other things but um julie it's been a pleasure having you on i feel like i've learned a great deal it's rare that we go so deep into the tech and i think that you know i've really enjoyed it i've really enjoyed learning about what you do and learning how that technology is definitely going to benefit healthcare and certainly is doing so. Um, and your work with Cochrane sounds awesome. If people want to get in touch with you to learn a bit more or to find out more about what data language can do for them, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, either uh, so they, our website's datalanguage.com or they can um, ping us an email, yeah, info at datalanguage.com or Uh, we're on lots of social media channels so yeah reach out awesome thanks so much for the opportunity of speaking to you james it's been a really enjoyable conversation you're very welcome thank you sir hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode 
Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.